Hello, I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you are listening to the History of Methodism podcast. You can support us online at patreon.com slash historyofmethodism. Today's episode, The Oxford Diaries. We must take a moment to break with the historical narrative of Methodism in order to understand the key to how we can even tell the story of Methodism, John Wesley's diaries. We will discuss the substance of Wesley's diaries in the next episode, but the puzzle that they have presented Wesley scholars over the years is fascinating in itself. John Wesley kept a diary from a few months before his ordination in 1725 up until a few weeks before his death in 1791. Many of the volumes are lost. As well, the diary was written in a coded shorthand that nobody fully understood until about 50 years ago. Wesley's use of the diary was to keep track of his temptations and sins as much as his daily life. And so the code he used was a tool to keep those sins private. He did not personally create this method, yet he used it continuously. For more than a century after Wesley's death, nothing was published about the diaries, while books on Wesley himself and Methodism in general were voluminous. Part of this had to do with the desire of Methodists to discount the pre-1738 John Wesley. Aldersgate held such a large shadow over the movement. John Wesley himself at times seemed to discount his own thoughts before that date in 1738. The other big issue was a lack of access to the diaries, as well as a lack of a true cipher to understand them. In 1907, Nehemiah Kernock began to decipher the diaries and publish sections of them in his Complete Works of Wesley. Kernock's breakthrough took place in a dream he had, as he writes about in a footnote of Volume 1 of his edition. Unfortunately, Kernock's cipher was not total and left much of the work to be finished by later generations. A few generations later, a young Methodist preacher, Richard Heitzenreiter, solved the mystery during his doctoral work. Professor Heitzenreiter taught me about Wesley and inspired my own love of this history in this period. He is currently finalizing the Wesley Works edition of the Oxford Diaries, which will be a huge leap forward on our understanding of this period, the diaries themselves, and the early John Wesley. Heitzenreiter writes the following in the preface to his dissertation on Oxford Methodism. I'm going to quote at a significant length because this is really Professor Heitzenreiter's story to tell. The discovery by the present writer, which shed light on Wesley's method, was not as dramatic as Kernock's, but equally as exciting to a mind increasingly bantered by the tedium of constant confusion. 
with respect to certain entries in the diaries. After two and one-half years of study, having gone completely through the five Oxford diaries at least twice, I finally had an opportunity to examine the manuscript holdings of the Methodist archives in London. Through the kindness of Dr. Baumer, many hours were spent in the strong room, sifting through volume after volume, trying to look at everything that might have any bearing on the history of the Oxford Methodists. One item that had caught my eye in an early listing of the holdings of the conference was a volume noted as The Diary of J. Harvey, 1733-1734, to in abbreviated script. Upon opening the small volume, similar in external appearance to many of the Wesley notebooks that made up the heart of the Coleman collection, it became immediately apparent that this diary was not only of the exact style as the later Oxford Diaries, but that it contained more explicit information than Wesley's Diaries of events and conversations. And the many columns of the format were given headings, opening up vast stores of coded information in this diary and in Wesley's as well. In addition to this, the diary covered a period for which there was no Wesley diary extant. The gradual realization that this was not actually James Harvey's diary, but rather Benjamin Ingham's, was of less real significance than what came to light in the front of the book. Inscribed at the top of an introductory page was the note, Charles Wesley, A.M., student of Christ Church, Oxford, taught me the following method of keeping a diary. I became acquainted with him and his brother John Wesley, A.M., and fellow of Lincoln College, Oxford, through... Charles Burton. Thereupon follows three pages, double-columned, of abbreviations used in this particular example of the Wesleyan method of keeping a diary. Some of the entries in the list served to verify guesses which I had made of fairly obvious meanings of some of the abbreviations in Wesley's diary. BR stands for breakfast. CH came home. WR, write. Some of the abbreviations would probably have remained forever behind the cloak of secrecy without this key. GTR, mostly religious talk. ITI, in vicious talk. The excitement of that discovery was breathtaking. But again, just the prelude to more long, hard months of digging back through page after page of complex diary entries. Although not all of the problems presented by the cipher were solved by Ingham's diary, many doors were opened to a fuller understanding of Wesley's diaries. Heisenreiter lays out the cipher itself in more detail in an essay published in 1988. He writes, First is a cipher which is a combination of substitution and transposition ciphers. In the substitution aspect of the cipher, Wesley uses numbers, dots, or symbols for the vowels he wishes to write. In the transposition aspect, he occasionally switches consonants so that when he writes down a letter such as D, he may indeed mean the consonant on either side, e.g., for a D, he would use a C or an F. To further complicate matters, Wesley at times applies the transposition rule to a substitution aspect of his cipher. That is to say, while 246810 or 13579 
may in either case substitute for A-E-I-O-U, Wesley occasionally uses a number, such as three or four, which would normally indicate an E, to mean an A or an I, the vowel on either side of the E. A second feature of his code is the persistent and heavy use of abbreviations. For example, in a typical early morning entry from the early 1730s, Wesley shows that he was asking himself certain questions for the day, proceeding with his self-examination and then reading the Bible, simply by the letters QXB. A third aspect of the code is Wesley's use of symbols other than letters or numbers. Besides symbols within the cipher to indicate particular letters, Wesley also uses special symbols to indicate words and phrases. In addition to these, he develops a rather interesting set of symbols to indicate degrees of attention. He uses six variations of the dash, above or below other entries, with or without a tail going up or down, to indicate these degrees, six attitudes that range from very negative to very positive. Wesley also works into his code several number schemes. He uses numbers to indicate a variety of things on the diary page, from the simple notation of the time of day to the rather complicated hourly listing of his resolutions broken and resolutions kept. As Wesley grew and changed, so did the content of the diary. He started very simply in 1725 with longhand that became more coded. Each day might be a few lines. By 1734, he switched to what is called an exactor diary with a full page for each day and columns to let us know about his questions, temptations, and use of his time. To be a Methodist never meant you had to keep a coded diary, but the diary's existence and method help us to understand who John Wesley was, as well as the times that he lived in. In our next episode, we will follow the code-breaking trail of Professor Heisenreiter in order to learn about John Wesley's life in the late 1720s, as revealed in the Oxford Diaries themselves. Next time on the History of Methodism. Thank you.